about done with the book. Um, I, I felt like I I wanted to leave chapter twenty four for itself. It's one of the it's one of the great to me anyway one of the neat stories of David that uh, deserve a closer attention. So I didn't want to include it in chapter twenty three. So we'll just cover them separately. Uh, twenty three is not a not a, a bad chapter by any stretch, and uh, some interesting things going on there as well. It's divided into two sections. The first seven verses are what's called to be the last words of David. Uh, and then uh, the last part of the chapter is describing his mighty men, which is interesting in and of itself that they're listed here. Uh, the three that stood apart from all the rest and then those and then that were considered to be the kind of the cream of the crop of his army. So we'll deal with that. Um, last week we saw in uh, chapter 22 was the Psalm of David. We saw how the Psalms offer an example of how we are to view life and deal with problems, how a Christian, a believer, a child of God um, reacts to the things that happen to him. David knew that he was there to serve and glorify the Lord and that they, uh, that the, excuse me, Lord was his only strength. And so we, we tried to make the uh, point that um, we have an obligation to make sure that that the Lord is glorified in however we uh, have to deal with problems and whatever happens uh, comes our way, both good and bad. So in each experience, victory, pain, sorrow, joy, he uses it as a way to express his love and praise for the Lord. And, and I think the Psalms give us that. I mean, there's other things that they do, but they certainly uh, offer an example for us uh, in the Christian life. So uh, let's... um. Let's first of all, well, let's just stand and read the first seven verses, and then we'll uh, read some of the uh, other verses as we go on. But we're in Second Samuel chapter twenty-three, the last words of David. It says, "Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of a man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me." His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, just in case there's any doubt or confusion, uh, David is saying, what I'm about to say is the Lord's words. This is, this is God's word. And it's a sense in which we can say that every time we open up the word of God, this is, uh, not man's word. Uh, it doesn't matter who was God used to wrote it, to write it. It was inspired by the Lord. And, And certainly what we read here is that case. Um, mid, mid part of verse 3 when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth for does not my house stand so with God for he has made me with an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure for he will not cause for he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like those thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So here we have some official words of David, of his, his last words. Um, at least as the last official words, I guess, maybe to the nation, as it were, inspired words. Uh, 
but noticeably it is a prophecy about the kingdom of God, about his his greater son, Jesus Christ, and the kingdom that was he was going to set up someday. Of course, we saw this in chapter uh, 7 of this book, where God comes to, to him through the prophet Nathan and, and promises him that he will have a descendant that shall have a king, the Davidic covenant, as it were. So David's last words are, in a sense, telling Israel, no matter what happens, one thing you can count on, uh, the kingdom of God will be set up. The, the Messiah will come. You know, this is a promise, you know, not that it's necessarily this one in particular, but ones like these that caused Simeon and Anna when they uh, held Jesus. They they had hope. This is the hope of my salvation. It is, it is passages like this that Israel hoped for. The Messiah was coming. And David said, it is ordered and sure. You can take it to the bank. You know, you can build your life upon it. And certainly, as Christians, we, in a sense, do this in a reverse fashion. Because he has come. And because of what he has done and promised us, that's what we build our lives upon. And so, this is all that, in a sense, it's much of a gospel, uh, looking forward to the gospel in these uh, words. David's kingdom is going to have some lot of low points, more low points than high points from hereafter. But he has this promise that someday a good king will come, a, a perfect king will come and set up an everlasting uh, kingdom that, of course, Jesus did that when he came to earth. Remember, he came in John both. The kingdom of God is at hand. And in Acts 2, at Pentecost, we see the coronation of Jesus as he sets the place the Peter says he sits upon the throne of David. He's, he's reigning and the kingdom has begun. So we are living in the kingdom and we look forward to the day when the kingdom will be in its full manifestation, the eternal state, when all sin will be destroyed, right? So, so all these things David said are, they're coming. It would behoove us to point out that it expressly says here that these are the last words of David. And so one thing I always like to point out when when I come to someone who is old and especially uh, to the point of death in the Old Testament, uh, David would be a great example of this. He is faithful and he is u- uh, useful until the end of his life. You don't retire from being a Christian. You don't retire from it. As long as God gives you breath, I don't care how weak and feeble we get, we have a purpose. We want to be uh, the praise of God to be on our lips. We want to be uh, seeking to be an influence uh, and, and to edify others around us. Don't, don't feel like uh, as you grow older, you know, things might change. You might obviously, you, you might not have the ability to do some of the things you did when you were younger, but, but uh, David is faithful to, the, to his dying breath. And uh, I always like that uh, just as a, a way of encouragement. And we pointed out, of course, that this is God's word, not David. And several times he mentions this. The fact that the Messiah is coming to set up this kingdom. And uh, so we are to learn them, to, to these words. We are to believe them and we are to act upon them. Of course, you know, in other words, this isn't just David saying something neat and, oh, yeah, and then we kind of go on with our lives. Israel was to keep this in mind. This was to, to uh, this is what they were looking forward to. This is what their lives were to be pushing forward to. And, of course, the problem is that Israel did not do this. As a rule, and uh, they they were not able. There was that remnant, of course, that was, but uh, 
that this is the gospel call. This is why I get up here and speak every week, is to remind us of who we are. This will, this will be the main point of the message to come in 1 Corinthians, of our identification as a member of the body of Christ. It, it's imperative that we understand our identity. And, of course, we that's the big one of the big hot topics in our culture, right? Identity. And you see those who abandon God and truth, have decided that I identify myself. And, and of course, the Christian, that is the true Christian, not, not the one in the, in the apostate churches, but the true Christian understands God has identified me. I know who I am because God has told me who I am. And he's made me who I am, right? And uh, so uh, they, Israel's being reminded of who they are. They are uh, there to help establish the kingdom of God. And so uh, once God makes his will known to us, then at that point, uh, we have no excuse to live differently, to, 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 to live in a way that forgets about that. That becomes our, the will of God to us. And so we gather uh, often to hear what God would say to his people so that we can learn to think differently and live differently than we did before. God's people are people who have been called out of the world. Uh, evidently, some people think that all that means is that uh, it, it's all in a spiritual sense that well, God's you know I, I, you know He's called me out in a spiritual way, and certainly that's true. He's regenerated us; we have life now that we didn't have before. But He's called us out to to live differently. He's He's brought us into the church, and, and we have a different focus and a different goal. You know, we live differently, right? And and uh, if, if the Word of God doesn't profoundly affect the way we live, something's wrong. So David's repetition is emphasizing the fact that he is about to speak God's word. So we are prepared to listen accordingly. Um, it, it is God's word. It's nothing but God's word. And if you're not ready um, to to understand that this is the word of God, you're not going to get anything out of it. You're not going to be listening to God because there are many false prophets out there today that tells us that, well, you know, this is man's experience with God. And there's things in it that God wants us to know, but not all. You know, just some of it. But of course, as soon as you say that, then, then you're basically saying, well, we don't have any idea whether any of it is. I mean, you know, once you say that, but we know, of course, that all of it is God's word and always has been understood that from the very beginning. And so we notice in verses four and five, for instance, that the kingdom is described entirely by the person of the king. I kind of like this, that you know, the, the, the thing that kind of makes the kingdom of God maybe different in some ways from just earthly kingdoms is that it's all about the king. It's not, a, you know, it doesn't talk about the laws and the rules and all that. Not, not that the kingdom of God doesn't have commandments and things like that, but the, the focus is the glory of the king. Because, you know, in the new covenant, it is uh, to be uh, consumed with Christ. That is the essence of keeping the commandments. You know, that's what it's all about. And it's not about, it's not only about rules. You know, in other words, God's kingdom is not just, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. That's, that's how some people kind of reduce Christianity to, right? What you can do, what you can't do. The essence of the new covenant is that now with Christ living in us, we are enthralled with him. So whatever we do, we do to please him. Because he's the love of our life, right? That, 
that's the essence. We notice here, he dawns on them like the morning light. David is enthralled with the king, not the, not the kingdom, as in a sense. Not that, not that you can separate it so much, but he's like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth, this king is a glorious king. You know, the tyrants of the earth, you know, we have the old saying, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And, and that's been proven since time began, since, since human, humanity has been created. That uh, tyrants most, as, as a rule, really only care about themselves at the end of the day. And they're not necessarily there to help the people. There, there certainly are some aspects of that, and there have been better uh, kings and, and tyrants and others. But this, we see Jesus, uh, the, the kingdom of God is described as one who gives life. That, that if you're in his kingdom, you flourish. You see that in verse 4 like grass sprouting out of the earth. God's kingdom is different in that it's always good for us. You know, we've got most people in our government, and we've got one of the better governments from what I can see here right on earth, certainly historically. But even, I think at this point, we could say that, that most of the people in our government really don't care anything about the good of the people. They're, they're concerned with themselves, with making money, with pushing an agenda. They don't care about the freedoms and the prosperity of God's people, or of, of the people, the citizens. But God's reign is different. You know, Jesus is on the throne, and I know that uh, he cares about me, and he, and he wants to see me prosper in the Lord. Not, not to prosper financially and health and all that, but, but to be all I can be as a servant of the Lord, and that someday I shall have eternal life with him. And so we're just reminded um that this king is different than the average king by far. It's obvious that David isn't referring to how later kings are going to rule. He's holding forth the perfect uh, king. But this king doesn't crush and milk his subject. He refreshes and nourishes them. And there's something about this king that attracts us, right? Um, you know, it, it doesn't... God doesn't force anybody to believe now and, and to... To, to bow the knee. It, it, he works in us so that we will, because we all by nature hate God, right? Romans is very clear about that. He, he works in us so that we willingly bow the knee. We willingly, we see his glory, right? Uh, he, he doesn't force anybody. And, and it could, if, if God had to force anybody to love him, then he's not a glorious God. You know, there's something, there's, there's a certain wrong. But once he, opens up someone's eyes to see who he is, all you can do is bow to me. All you can do is say, yes, there's no there's no one lovelier than him. And uh, so this king is a king that gives life. Christ conquers hearts, not bodies and lands. That's, of course, that's one thing different about the kingdom of God is that you know, Jesus says the kingdom is within you. The kingdom of God in his present state is one in which Christ has Opened up my heart, and and once he does that, once I give him my heart, well, he's got my body, right? He's got everything else, and, that, and that's how the, the that's why the church was commissioned not to take up swords and try to spread Christianity like the, like the Muslims do and others have tried to do, because that's not what it is. We preach the gospel because what does the gospel do? Well, when by the when the when the Holy Spirit sovereignly 
works in it, it changes hearts. Because that's how the kingdom is spread, through the preaching of the gospel. And that's all that matters. Uh, you know, trying to expand, expand physical borders isn't going to help anybody. It's changing their heart through a conversion. And so verse 5 says, uh, for not, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. You know, David said there's life in it that God is working in his, uh, family line. He's, gonna, he's producing a, a line that's going to produce Christ and it's a, it's, he's made this everlasting covenant with me and it's ordered and it's secure in all things. And he's not here talking just about God's sovereignty. Uh, this kingdom and our endurance is, uh, because it is based on Christ's merits. The reason it's ordered and sure is because Christ, uh, is based on his perfect righteousness. It's based on his obedience. And, uh, so, uh, He's the one who uh, has uh, given our sins based on what he has done. And so that's where we, um, our security lies in Christ. Um, so he, uh, the latter part of verse 5, for he will not cause to prosper all my help. And, my, and, and this is the question, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So you see that. Uh, it is something that is good for us. It is something that will be pleasant for us. Not just something God is not just trying to uh, ex- make a name for himself at the expense of somebody else, right? God, that's not what, how God loves. So in verses six and seven, we see the other side of this. So we'll kind of close this section with, with this thought that, uh, there's a, if you don't bow to knee to this God, to this kingdom, then here's what awaits you. And he, he talks about these worthless men that are like thorns that, 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 are, that have to be thrown away because nobody can, you, know, you can't even touch them without being hurt. And you've got to put gloves on and, you, and you've got to do it at a distance. And, and the prophecy ends in by reminding us of something that the religionists, that, you know, the, there's a lot of professing Christians out there who want to all talk about how God loves everybody, but they don't want to talk about the wrath of God against sinners, right? And, and here we see that, no, there's only two kinds of people. There's those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are going to be destroyed by God someday for not entering the kingdom of God, for not bowing the knee. And so, um, we notice how unlike Christ, these men's hearts are and the, and the rules are they inflict pain, not life, they hurt who they touch. Um, for their rejection of the Lord, they shall have death. It, it, this is a lot like it reminds me of John 15, where Jesus remember saying, talking about vines and branches and, and branches that don't produce grapes, he, he gathers up and they're going to be thrown to the fire, right? What's kind of what's, what's being said here? These are thorns, these are part of the plant, but they're not, they're not. Producing life and fruit, and they're uh, only fit to be destroyed, and, and he says as much. And so the obvious fact is that not all are in the kingdom of God. Not everybody is God's children, you know, because that's a lot of things you hear out there sometimes that we're all God's children. Well, we're all God's creatures, but you're either a rebel or you're a child of God. Uh, through Christ, you've been joined to the Son of God. So 
that's the only way you're a child of God. So everybody's not children of God. Uh, and, and, and God doesn't love everybody equally. God loves those who are in his son, and his wrath is upon those who are not. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a love, a general love for all his creatures. He wants all men to repent. He has sent his son to die to provide salvation. But only because of his sovereign love in uh, electing some that any would be saved. And so it's easy uh, for many churches to open up their ar- their arms to all, to sign a card. You don't have to have any sign of submission to Christ. You can refuse baptism, whatever. We don't care. We just just come on in and be part of the church. God loves you. And I'm sorry, but you know you're going to have a hard time finding that in Scripture. I was actually reading of a missionary candidate who uh, it was a younger guy at a time when when uh, they were this mission. Uh, board was struggling a little bit and they were going to send this younger uh, missionary kind of as an intern and the um, field missionary there would not refuse to uh, help him get his visa because the this younger missionary says I, he made it very clear I don't want to be identified openly as a professing Christian. I want to go and help but I don't want to be called a Christian. I don't want, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be called a professing Christian. And the field missionary said, mm, I don't need him. And, and the, uh, well, I'm not exactly sure what his status was, but whoever was kind of at home, you know, in charge of all this said, well, you, you need to just bring him on anyway. He's the younger generation. Look at things differently. They have a different way of looking at commitment and all that. And, uh, that's okay. Just he has something to offer. If, if you will bow to knee to Christ, if you will not openly profess your uh, allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have anything to offer the church. You certainly don't have anything to offer the lost, those in, in that, uh, that they, wherever this place was. I just thought it was an amazing story. We, uh, those who are ashamed of the Lord, um, have no, have nothing to offer God's people. And I think this is what we see here in verses six and seven. These are people who have no um, I, and I don't find fuzzy distinctions in the Bible when it comes to either believers or those who are not. Now, I understand that even sometimes real saints struggle with their assurance. And, and there are weaker Christians, there are strong Christians, and I, I understand all that. But you either profess Christ as Lord, that's what your baptism is all about. And if you won't do that, then no one can take your profession seriously. Because if anything, if anything, a Christian is one who, who follows Christ. They're, they're believers. You believe in Jesus. You follow him. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say that, well, that's an option. And if you don't, that's okay. Because remember, those who refuse to profess me before men, I will not profess before my father. In other words, I will not identify him as one of mine. If you do not profess me before men, and it doesn't mean that, well, you can lose your salvation or whatever. It just means that when God actually saves somebody, there, there might be times when they struggle. There, there's times, I think, when real Christians have denied the Lord, no doubt about that. But at, at, at some point, they will profess Christ. He changes us. So we either follow him or we follow ourselves. And, and you think about 
someone straddling the fence, because that's kind of how we would describe someone like this. They're straddling the fence. Well, one thing about a fence straddler is you know this much. He hasn't crossed. He's not on the other side. And until you get to the other side, uh, you're in trouble. And so this is these people here are, are people who uh, are not in the kingdom. And it says that they shall be consumed with fire. And this reminds me of Isaiah 66. In, in, in the latter, just in the last verse of Isaiah 66, and, and this last section of that chapter is, I think, about the final judgment, primarily, in the eternal state. You know, that's kind of what I think Isaiah is looking forward to. And the very last verse would indicate that those who are who are in the eternal state, those who are saved, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now again, it's it's couched in in Old Testament language, you know, but I but there's certainly some have taken this to mean there's a sense in which we can look at this and say, well, we know this is true. In other words, we know that you're either with the Lord and you're, or you're not. You're, you're going to suffer in hell forever, right? But there's certainly something here that would indicate that perhaps in the eternal state, the, 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 the fires of hell are something we can see. And I, and I, and I used to think, well, by this, I can't, I can't understand that because that would kind of ruin heaven. But the problem is, I don't know how to think with a glorified mind and a glorified body. So if, if this is the case, and again, it's, it, I think that there's, you know, room for maybe different ways to look at this, but it, it'll be, we can look at this and see and praise the justice of God and, and, and not be, it would not ruin us, that ruin our experience because we'll, we'll be so enthralled with the king, we'll be so, uh, on, on board with, with true righteousness and we won't have the, the rebellion in our hearts and bodies that we do now so that we'll be okay, first of all, with anything God does, but, but to, the, to punish the wicked, we would certainly be able to look on that and not and, and to agree with it and to praise the Lord with it. But it, but you know all that aside, it's a stark graphic reminder again that, that the book of Isaiah finishes with of the end of the law. So uh, everything else aside, I don't want to be in that number. We have the song about the number we want to be. I want to be in that number. Well, I want to be in the number that that God is going to come back for. And take with, to be with him. I don't want to be in the number where, uh, you know, in the inquitable fire, in the inquitable worm. And so, um, that hopefully would be any, any here who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't repented of their sins, that that should be a verse that should drive you to Christ. All right. So let's just finish by looking at starting in verse eight. We have a little contrast because in verse six and seven, here are the worthless men. Here are the, here are the ones that David had to, in a sense, in his kingdom, was always having to fight against. We've studied now in First and Second Samuel. We've seen many of these kind of guys, right? The, the, the Wag, the Edomite, Saul, um, others who uh, just were wicked, 
that uh, caused nothing but problems, that, that, that Goliath, you know, all the different the people that we've seen. Now all of a sudden, though, we say, well, here, here's what those who are mighty in the kingdom, those who are mighty followers of David, this is what they look like, this is what they do. So it's kind of a, it offers a little bit of a, of a contrast of those who are fiercely loyal to the king. And loyalty causes them to fight for and to sacrifice for the king as, as you read down this. Now what it did not cause them to do is to go home and hide and wait for things to be easy. They were involved in the battle for the 40 years of David's rule. They fought and in some cases they died for the king. And uh, so again, I think it's a good example here, something for us to think about. Their feats were simply the, the same things that David had been doing all along. It reminds me that those who those who are warriors in the kingdom of God emulate the king. We, we do what Jesus did, and I don't mean that in a trite way. What would Jesus do? Because Jesus was God, the God Man. We, we don't do everything Jesus did, but we are to be conformed to His image, and primarily what. What we would be conformed to is where Jesus says, I do always those things that please the Father. That's what I want. I want to be always those things that please the Father. That's our duty. And this is what we see. These are mighty men in that they did those things that please David. We'll see an example of that in just a moment. And so these feats were simply things that they had seen David do all along. Um, we notice in verses 10 and 12 that... Um, well, notice here, we'll just read them, and then we'll make a comment about them. It said, uh, well, let's, let's start reading verse 8. Just to, I don't want to have to read these names, so we just might as well get into it. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Uh, Josheb Bashhebeth, a uh, Tachimanite. He was chief of the three. So you got three mighty men who stood above all the rest. And here's the first one, Josheb. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, uh, the son of Dodo, that's unfortunate, son of Ahoi. He was with David when he defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. So he stuck around, right? He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Well, what we see in verse 12, just also, but this, this, this next guy, uh, Shama, uh, well, it tells us verse 11, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi. There was a plot of ground full of lentils, lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines, but he, Shema, took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. First of all, 10 and 12 remind us that these were, it, it, over and over again, these guys are described as mighty warriors, mighty men. They were strong. They were, they were skilled in warfare. They were courageous. But just in case we get full of ourselves or they get full of themselves, every time they did anything, oh, remember the Psalms. The Lord did this. The Lord gave them the victory. And, and that, what a great example for us. And no matter what we do, every once in a while the Lord just does something, we, you know, that blesses us in some way. We're, we're helpful. We do something good. The Lord gets the glory. Don't, don't forget where you got the strength, right? So we're reminded about that. 
uh, it's interesting. The first guy it says there that his hand was clung to the sword. What that means, I think, is that he, in killing those 800 men, uh, there'd be a lot of blood and gore and whatever else. And he, of course, never let go of that sword until those 800 were dead. It's to the point that his hand was stuck to the sword to some degree. You say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, actually, there's, there's at least two examples that I'm aware of. One was uh, a guy in Waterloo, who uh, at the Battle of Waterloo, uh, who had uh, a sword. You know, sometimes there's that, like a little bit of a basketball that would protect the hand on a sword. And he had killed so many men that that whole thing had just filled up with a uh, um, with blood, dried blood, to the point that they had to take it to a blacksmith to, to get him out of it. And another one, unfortunately, here uh, is the 1860s, uh, some place called Mount Lebanon. I'm not sure exactly where that was. If that's in the Lebanon, it could be. But there were some Muslims who had slaughtered a lot of Christians, and one guy had slaughtered so many that his hand literally froze. You know, he, he couldn't release his thing, and he had to have uh, bathe it in warm water so he could release his sword. So I think that's what's going on here. It just indescribable uh, gore and and you know to think about all this, but that's what they did. It, this is what these did for the Lord. And so uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. But um, also notice though that he mentions these three, and then he starts to mention all these other ones. Um, you know, as you get down, you know, the Abishai, of course, you know, and Joab and some of these guys, they were, uh, they were very high in David's army. Then, uh, you get down to verse 24, you start to mention, uh, just several other guys who were mentioned there. And we're reminded that, uh, you know what? There's degrees of ability, degrees of gifts, degrees of faith and strength. We're not all going to arrive, attain to the same level of fame or uh, abilities, ministry as somebody else. And, and what, what this list reminds us of is that we're not all going to look the same. We don't all have the same abilities, and that's okay. But we, I thank God for the great men of church history who have stood the faith and put their lives at risk, many who have suffered, but have continued. Uh, you know, help build the church up with, with the, with doctrine and with the different things they did. You think about Calvin and Luther and what they did. And, and there's a lot of that. If you study history, a lot of other guys out there who were very helpful, of course. Those are some that we know, but it just, just helps us to be content. I'm thankful for the men like John MacArthur today and, and those who, who are willing to stand up. And, and, you know, Steve Lawson, I don't know how many of you are real familiar with Steve Lawson, but, you know, he's a, he's a man who's, when he gets up, he speaks. You're not wondering what he meant, right? And he's, he he said, "This is the truth, and I don't care what happens." And that's and that's one reason why I like him. And and but but we're thankful for them. But we don't all have that ability, that platform to do some of the things they do, and that's okay. But do what we can, for sure. Oh, you know, in First Chronicles, as you know, we've, we've seen that that sometimes adds information to Second uh, Samuel. And there, uh, it goes on to say, I think, yeah, right down here, it says, um, this is kind of how it finishes up 
this idea in the same section of the half tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who are expressly named to come and make David king, a visitor, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. I kind of see that as the gift of discernment that we talked about last week a little bit. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. So you've got the mighty three. Then you've got some who were named, who, who had, you know, you know, we, we studied some of them. And then you got, you know, you got the nameless, the, the masses, the rest of us, you know, as it were. That's kind of where I know I fit. I'm just part of it and I'm glad to be part of it. And I want to do what I can. Uh, because the, you know, in other words, lists like this remind us that God knows. You know, He had it inspired that we, you know, it wasn't just the, the, the few who had done a lot of stuff that God knew about. He knew about the thousands and thousands of, of nameless men who helped serve David. And that, re, that just uh, encourages me to be faithful. The Lord knows them that are His. And uh, someday we'll hear the well done, thou good and faithful servant. So, David, uh, do one more example here before we close, and that's in verse 17. Uh, well, let's start at verse 16. When the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out, okay, I need, I'm sorry, I need to start at verse 16. And David said longingly, because they, they were, uh, uh, <laughs> Let's read verse 14. David was then in the stronghold of the garrison of the Philistines that was at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So they were trying to take Bethlehem, it would appear. The Philistines had it. And when the three mighty men uh, broke through the camp of the Philistines, and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the, at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And so David is astounded at their love to the point that he, he just said, I can't drink this when they would do sacrifice themselves for me like this. And so it, it just I think it's just a reminder that, that the Lord sees the the things that we do, the sacrifices that we make, and and, and that's part of why uh, we make those sacrifices. The Lord sends these things so that we might demonstrate our love, but he recognizes that. And uh, it will not be forgotten. And yet our love, whatever we're able to do for the Lord, pales in re- in uh, relation to the Lord's love for us in Christ Jesus. And and uh, so always remember that sometimes our love falters, but the Lord's never will. And so um, we know that if God sees fit to remember these men's feats, he will not forget ours either. And that's why I said... There, that's why these lists are in the Bible. It's like Romans 16, where these lists of people that helped Paul in the early days. Uh, I think those lists remind us that, that the Lord remembers these things. He, he sees these things. 
And then we'll just close by looking at Malachi 3.16. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possessions. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So you see again that distinction in the last verse there. But the the fact that God sees everything that's going on is uh, related to us in that he has a book of remembrance. Now, I don't think it's a literal book because God doesn't need to write something down, right, to remember it. But it's written in a way, as much of the Old Testament is in prophecies, uh, in a way that we can relate to. I, for me to remember, I need to write it down. You know, Sandra will tell you, she, she's always making lists. And I, and I do as, that as well. Maybe not as well as she does it. But that's how we remember. So what, what we're being told here is God's not going to forget. He's not going to forget his own when he comes to bring, you know, we're, the church is referred to as God's treasure possession. When he comes back for us, he knows exactly who has been faithful to serve the Lord and those who have rejected him. And he knows those who are his. And so these verses just kind of remind us, I think, of some of those things God doesn't forget. So as we close, the very last person mentioned, interestingly enough, in verse 39, is Uriah the Hittite, 37 and all it says. Uriah is considered one of the mighty men of God, right? He, he's not in the upper tier, but he was, he was in, he was one of the named ones. And yet, it, but the problem is, it's such a downer because this is all about David and his mighty men and, and loyal David was to them and they were to David. And then the Lord says, you know, the last one I want you to, re, to write down is Uriah just to remind us that David isn't the king that uh, we need. It's his greater son. David had his problems. David was, he failed in a lot of ways. And we've, we've been seeing that. We'll see it next week to some degree. As with David, though, every time we see him fail, uh, he always bounces back. You know, so, a lot of times. so that's what we're going to see next week. But, but it just reminds us there's a greater king coming because David, as great as he was, he, he wasn't the savior. He wasn't, what we need, we needed the perfect Savior, and that is found in Jesus Christ. He's the one and the only one who's worthy to be praised. All right? Any questions or comments before we have a word of prayer? Thank you, Father, for this day, for the Word of God, and for these passages that, Lord, are sometimes thought of as obscure, but there, there's there's things there to be reminded of. There's things there about the gospel, things there about our duty, about who how much Christ loves us, what he has done for us, uh, about the, uh, the, the fact that uh, God doesn't forget us, that the kingdom cannot be shaken, that the kingdom will never come to an end. These, these are passages that if we'll just take the time to read them and to think about them, uh, there's much there for us to see. So we thank you for your word. And ask your blessings upon our second service. Those who could not be here today, in Jesus' name, amen.